Hi, welcome to valuationpodcast.com, a podcast and video series about all things related to business and valuation. My name is Melissa Gregg, and I provide online divorce mediation and valuation services in St. Louis, Missouri. Today, we will discuss insight into dental market transactions with Maria Malone. Maria is a leading M&A advisor to the dental industry and an investment banker in Chicago, Illinois, with a mission to help both individual dentists and dental groups navigate the complex landscape of dental practice transactions. Maria is the managing director at Caber Hill Advisors, also located in Chicago, Illinois. Welcome, Maria. How are you? Great. It's so good to be here today with you, Melissa. Really well, and to this. Yes, I know. And it's so funny because since we kind of scheduled this, we've actually talked a lot to each other about other dental practices. But right. I think in general, people, when they're in this process of valuation, they're usually mm -hmm. doing the valuation for some reason, right? And when we look at dental practices, um, a lot of times they're doing it to either transition the practice to new dentists or to sell it outright. And just kind of getting started, I don't know if people really know how dentists are currently selling their practices. These things change over time. So maybe you can give us kind of a reference point. Sure. Happy to um, go into a little bit of history and then bring us to where we are today as there has been quite a shift, um, you know, so historically speaking, the dental industry was um, really a, very much a cottage industry, um, mostly made up of solo practitioners spending their entire careers um, in a single location and then, you know, transitioning or selling that business to a doctor coming out of school. And um, in that process, most sellers relied on a broker to help facilitate that process. However, you know, very um, interestingly, I guess, especially from where I sit, um, most of these brokers across the country, you know, were not financial people, were not accounting people, didn't have um, any valuation training, um, but somebody showed them, you know, anywhere from three to eight methods of how to value a business most of which were very subjectively based. Um, and so, you know, that was what was used and there wasn't a lot that was questioned about it. Um, and then, you know, I would say starting about 20 years ago, um, we, start, we started to see an interest in consolidating the dental industry. And so we started to see the formation of, you know, what I've always referred to as group practices 20 years ago, a lot of people in the industry would say corporate dentistry. Um, you know, I, I really try to stay away from that because it has a bit of a negative um, connotation to it. But, um, you know, as we saw that happening, you know, that then invited more sophisticated parties um, to the space. And with that became a more sophisticated view and approach to how to value a business. And so, um, you know, what used to be considered a valuation standard was percentage of collections. And so, you know, oftentimes when I talk to solo practitioners, even, even still today, sometimes they'll ask me, you know, what do you say the value of my business is? Is it 70% of collections? And, you know, I try to help them understand that that's really a reference point. It's not a valuation methodology. Um, and so, you know, where we are today with most of the sophisticated buyers, the way that they're looking at a dental practice, whether it's a single location or, you know, multiple locations is a multiple of EBITDA. Um, and so that's really becoming sort of the standard um, for how investors are looking at these businesses, whether they're um, entrepreneurial dentists that are trying to accumulate accumulate a number of locations or the more sophisticated strategic buyers and or private equity firms backing them or independent private equity firms trying to um, make an entree into this, this space. And I think EBITDA, you know, people can kind of confused at what it stands for 
um, you know, EBITDA, you know, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. But a lot of times it's just cash flow, right? Yeah. It's like what's going into the pocket of the doctor um, or dentist and what could an outside investor kind of look at. But um, a, a lot of times when they come for evaluation, they're really looking at like, how much could I sell this for? Right. Yeah. And like, I want the biggest number. So what's the biggest number I can get? But that's not actually how we look at this. Right. Because there's a way to price a dental practice to sell. Yeah. Okay. And then there's a way to like hope that you get millions of dollars for, for whatever you want. You know, like a lot of times people are saying, I just want somebody to pay me $2 million. And it's like, Okay, what's the basis for that? So is there really a basis of of how you price the practice to sell and what kind of goes into that process on your end? Yeah, um, you know, it's really a tough question to boil down into uh, a nice, concise answer. Um, as with any business, there's so many um, facets of what truly makes that business tick. Um and when we think about, you know, dental practices in particular, um, by far the largest majority of the value of a practice or even, you know, a group of practices is in the intangible asset, the goodwill um, uh, of, of those businesses. And so, you know, what, when we look at the value, um, you know, the things that we talk about are growth. So, you know, does the practice have a history or even multiple locations? Is there a history of historical growth? And is there any sort of path or identified path for continued growth? And that can either be, um, you know, adding an associate, adding a hygienist, um, maybe going to a continuing education class and learning how to do implants. And so now you're you're increasing the types of procedures that you can for, perform. Um, it can be doing an acquisition of an existing practice or building a practice from scratch, which we refer to as de novo. So, you know, I would say growth is typically one of the biggest um, things that we look at. Certainly for a solo practitioner, and, th and this happens, or at least I've come across it many, many times where um, a doctor gets later on into their career, they start to either scale back their time. So maybe they go from four days to three days. Um, maybe they are also scaling back the types of procedures that they're doing. So, um, you know, and, and then we see a revenue drop. And, you know, a lot of times those doctors will come to me and say, well, but, you know, two years ago, I was doing 2 million. And, I was like, that's great. But, you know, this past year, um, you've only done, you know, 1.4 million. And, you know, somebody can't pay you based on 2 million, because we don't know if those patients that made up that $2 million revenue stream are still are still part of your practice. And chances are, they're not. Mm -hmm. um, and sort of related to that, you know, one of the things that I you know, typically focus on is new patients per month. Um, and to me, that's a, a very good indicator of if the practice is truly a dying practice, or if it's a healthy practice that's continuing to bring new patients in. And, and in fact, I like to look at that uh, more so than what a lot of people look at and focus on, which is active patients. Um, and I find that most people that aren't, um, you know, well-educated in the dental industry get hung up on this active patient count when in fact, nobody has a definition. There's no standard definition of what an active patient is. So is an active patient someone that's come in in the last 12 months, 18 months, 24 months? Does that include an emergency, you know, emergency visit that, you know, maybe they've only had one visit and we don't know if they're ever going to come back for continued care. So, um, and then also, you know, all of the softwares tend to measure that um, differently. Um, so, you know, in my opinion, it's really 
you know, not a very good thing to, to focus on. Um, you know, and then other things that we look at, obviously, are the physical plant, um, you know, is the practice or group of practices modern and up to date? Are they, you know, today, digital radiography is really, I would say, considered a standard of care. Um, and so, you know, if your practice doesn't have digital radiography, that's definitely seen as a negative and something that, you know, a new owner is going to have to make an investment in pretty quickly, um, especially because, you know, all of the younger practitioners nowadays are trained in that. And so, um, and, you know, along those lines, it's, it's so interesting to me how many doctors, especially solo practitioners, you know, they opened their practices 35 years ago. I'm sure they were beautiful and state of the art at that time, but they've really neglected, you know, to make any investment um, into the practice. And, you know, now, you know, we're faced with a tough situation where, um, you know, again, somebody's going to have to come in and certainly do at least some cosmetic stuff, um, but more likely some some significant um, investment into, you know, the chairs and the equipment and, and even computers and desks and, and things like that. Um, and then probably another big area would be the staff. So having a trained staff, obviously, um, is, is very important, especially when you think about a doctor to doctor transition. Um, you know, most doctors that are coming into practice ownership don't have experience um, with that. And, you know, most younger doctors, even though, you know, maybe they've worked a couple of years in a practice, they're still working on their clinical skills. And so having a trained staff there that can um, support them and help them with, um, you know, more of the non-clinical aspects of the practice, but also help them, you know, work on developing themselves clinically um, is really important, especially for those younger practitioners and, and new owners of businesses. Well, and I think to hit on a couple things that you talked about, which I thought were interesting is that I would assume that a lot of doctors do this, um, which is they instead of saying, oh, let's go sell the practice because I have this $2 million in revenue right now. They're just like, well, I'll just work four days. I'll just work three days. I mean, because I talk to a lot of them that that is exactly where they're at in that process. And I didn't really think about it from that perspective that now you have a one, you know, like you're doing it for your own life balance, but it's literally dropping the price and it's just a choice, right? Right. Yeah. And it will create the attrition though of those clients because eventually, and it could just be, I don't want to do those services anymore or something like that. But the other thing that I thought was really important was the new clients. So can you combat the fact that your, your, your total practice has declined if you can show that we have a, a constant, you know, new clients that maybe we turn away clients or maybe we don't take on certain clients? Like, is that even effective for a buyer? Um, it's really very difficult. Um probably the only way you would get credit for something like that would be in some sort of earnout or deferred payment based on, you know, the practice growing and, you know, as a buyer um, or, or counseling a buyer in that scenario, I'd probably discourage them from doing that because it, it becomes very difficult to determine if it's something the buyer did to now bring in, you know, some new patient flow, or is it truly something um, that the seller is doing or, or the effects of something that the seller has been doing coming to fruition at some point in the future. So, um, that, that's really a tough one, I think. Well, and I think it's a huge takeaway for dentists uh, because that is what everybody kind of does is start to transition and just, you know, I'm going to run this forever. And I wonder if some of the buyers actually kind of know that that's what's going to happen. And that's when they can get better deals or something like that. 
because you know they're they're just paying on three days worth of services as opposed to five days worth of services. So in some capacity, getting maybe another doctor, a younger doctor staff, or more hygienist may be a better way to have more life balance yeah. than and people don't you know that thing seems more risky, right? right. Right. I mean, there's definitely headaches that come along with those things as well. But I think the other interesting aspect of this is really when it comes down to the size of the practice. So going from a $2 million practice to a $1.4 million practice, you're still going to see a lot of interest for that size of a business. But when you talk about going from a $750,000 practice to a $500,000 practice, surprisingly, it becomes very difficult to find a buyer for that $500,000 practice. And the reason is kind of twofold um, with what we see going in the marketplace today. One is for the typical doctor coming out of school. um, I haven't checked super recently, but the last figure I had was that their educational debt alone was approaching $300,000 on average. Um, and that doesn't include specialty. Specialty, they're probably well over 500, you know, maybe even over 600,000 of, of debt when they're when they come out of school. And so when you think of that and you think about the fact that those um, candidates are also likely looking to do some life changes. So maybe they're getting married. Maybe they're going to have a family. Maybe they want to buy a house. Um, you know, not that they can't get access to capital. Um, But sometimes that can be quite overwhelming Mm. to be that young and sitting on probably what would be well over a million dollars of debt. Um, And and, you know, also related to that is definitely under five hundred thousand dollars of collections. You're now getting into a situation where um, you're probably not going to be able to generate enough money to pay off any debt and still have a decent living. Um, so, so that becomes very challenging to transition those practices to younger doctors or first time owners, um, you know, for group practices, um, you know, they generally want to bring on and acquire successful thriving businesses. Um, you know, that being said, there are some groups and, some entrepreneurs that um, will take sort of the gamble of stepping into taking over those practices um, with the idea that they'll grow them um, to something that's a lot more attractive. But but I would say more more than not, most of these larger buyers are really looking for those practices that are already you know doing very well and are very healthy. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think and and I'm. I'm not trying to belabor it, but I think it's just an amazing, it's, I just didn't even think about it, that most of them will, in their transition to retirement, the easy path seems to just take off a day and and scale back when the reality is that may not secure a good price when you go to sell in a few years, whereas taking on somebody and finding another dentist not even for them to be the potential buyer, just to keep the practice right. at a level that is actually saleable um, seems to that that would work in its best interest. You also mentioned something which I think um, is very interesting to me. I kind of became familiar with this this concept um, several years ago whenever we had a couple practices being approached by a DSO or a group practice. And can you tell us what is a DSO or group practice and how they are actually buying dental practices right now? Sure. So, you know, most people I would say would define DSO as dental support organization. And typically what that means is it's um, really meant to help non-dentists um, become partners with dentists. Um, now that's not to say that, um, a dentist can't, you know, can certainly be an owner of a DSO, but the primary reason for the formation of, of this structure is to provide the opportunity for those non-dentists, um, to be able to partner. Um, and you can, you can 
um, take that partner term, you know, very loosely or very stringently, depending on your perspective and, and how you want to go about this. But, you know, the reason for this is that in most states, um, only a licensed dentist can own um, for sure the clinical um, aspects of a practice. So patient charts, um, contracts with insurance companies, um, and then, you know, state by state, um, there are rules and regulations regarding who can employ, you know, hygienists, dental assistants, and then um, more of the administrative or clerical team. So that, you know, that's the nature of, of where that started, um, again, was to bring in a more sophisticated business mind and business acumen into this industry that was now seeing consolidation. Um, and so, you know, what I think is also interesting um, is the shift to, um, well, and, <laughs> and, well, and even, I mean, cause this kind of piggybacks and, and when we were talking about this, these kind of piggyback together, right? Like I only saw like DSOs, right? <clears throat> and then when I talked to you, it was like, wait, there are also private equity firms, you know, getting involved in buying dental practices. And I think it's really interesting because in my mind, the DSO model or private equity was created so that people could come in and kind of, we have these dentists and they're really smart, but maybe they're not as efficient with the business process. Yeah. And so these DSOs are like, well, how do I be a owner, but not a dentist, but I could make it be efficient and we could make more money. Yeah. Is that kind of how, and now private equity is coming in and saying, now we want to get involved. Well, I, is there a difference in how they're getting involved than the traditional DSOs or is it similar? No, I mean, there's definitely been a big evolution to this. Uh, although I will say that, you know, from the very beginning, like, you know, over 20 years ago when I first got introduced to the industry, um, we didn't call it DSO back then. We actually called it DPM dental practice management company. This is how we were described, but um, even back then, there was private equity money that was supporting some of these early groups. And, and actually, there were a couple of groups that were publicly traded. Um, so I, I ended up working for one of the companies that ended up being publicly traded. But, you know, over time, I think what um, has been seen, especially by the investing community, is the fact that um, dentistry is recession resistant. So, you know, you think about 08, um, you know, most dentists took a little dip in their, you know, top line and bottom line, bottom line, but weren't significantly or severely impacted. You know, we didn't see dentists closing their offices because, um, because of losing patient bases. Um, and, you know, there's there's very much a growing trend in dentistry. I mean, I think in healthcare in general, obviously, but um, in dentistry in particular, um, for a few factors, one is people are living longer and they're living longer with their natural dentition. Um, and then we also are, are getting into a point where we're going to have more, um, say, 50 plus um, who tend to have access to more disposable income. Um, and I think there are also a lot of technologies that are coming into dentistry um, that are providing people solutions for, you know, more cosmetic based um, care um, for these people that now have, you know, um, access to 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 be able to invest in themselves and invest in their smiles. Um, the other thing I wanted, I did want to go back to was um, the DSO versus group practice. You know, the way I think about it is they're synonymous. I just tend to use the word group practice because, again, I think, you know, in some circles using the term DSO may, you know, bring a negative thought into somebody's head. Um, and so I just like to talk about group practice and group practice can be, you know, anything from a single location with five doctors to, um, you know, a thousand offices. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and <clears throat> you just kind of spoke about it, but you basically worked for a company that was purchasing um, a bunch, uh, you know, a publicly held company that was purchasing dental practices. And I think this is, a, you know, like, I know that this is what everybody likes to know, you know, is there a rule of thumb or evaluation multiple on how a dental practice is priced or worth? But I think if we, if we take that one step further and we look at it from the private equity perspective, right? Because, you know, are, th- are there multiples? And I'll caveat it, be an evaluation professional by saying that these multiples can change every day and they are averages and they're just like, you know, nobody should really, really consider them, but everybody wants to know. Now, do private equity, do they have some current kind of ways that they're looking at practices and kind of pricing them? Um, Maybe that's helpful insight to a dental, uh, a, a dentist at this point. Yeah. I mean, the way I think about it is sort of in groupings, um, you know, and again, this is very, very broad brushed um, there, you know, as we touched on earlier, there's so many factors um, and we didn't even go into all the factors. I just mentioned a few highlights of things that we look at when we're looking at what is the real value of this business. But, um, you know, in a, in a broad brush, I would say, you know, your typical solo practitioner, probably three to five times, EBITDA. Um, if you're a single location with multiple doctors, or maybe you're one to three offices, you know, four and a half to six times. Um, if you're, you know, anywhere from three to 10 locations, you know, you're probably six to eight times. Um, if you've got a, a robust or a strong, um, historical growth trend with a robust pipeline for growth, whether that's through acquisition or opening new offices, you know, then you're probably getting to the eight to 10. And then, you know, to really get over a 10 times, you've got to have the growth, you've got to have the doctor retention, and you've got to have a team in place that can, can help the business continue to grow even further. Um, And again, that's, that's also just very broad brush. And, you know, we certainly see, I mean, I just heard, I guess, right before Thanksgiving of a group, a large group that um, offered eight and a half times on a solo practitioner, you know, in Western Massachusetts, which is a, you know, seems like a very crazy um, multiple to pay on on that type of office. But, um, you know, I think that that group is probably about to have their own liquidity event. And so mm-hmm. they're probably just trying to get some more revenue, um, right. you know, under them as they, they think about their, their next process. Well, and I think that piggybacking on that kind of concept, <clears throat> are there things, because I think we've clearly identified the things that you need to focus on to make your practice worth more, right? Are yep. there just a handful of things that could actually decrease the value and that people should start working on in their practice? Um, so not so much decrease, but certainly um, one thing that definitely is, is generally overlooked is accounts receivable balances um, and especially credit balances. So really making sure that you're collecting um, money due to you in a timely basis. And also um, these credit balances, especially when you're dealing with today's sophisticated buyers can really become a bit of an issue. And it usually ends up com- coming due, you know, or coming up close to closing. And so then people are scrambling to figure out what to do about them. So really paying attention to that, I think is important and critical if you're um, anywhere close to thinking about a transition um, you know, in terms of bringing evaluation down, you know, again, I think the physical plant and the t- technology side of it are big because, you know, those are, can be some pretty big dollars if, if a new owner has to come out of pocket early to make those upgrades. Um, and when we're talking big dollar, we're talking pieces of equipment that are like 50 grand, a hundred grand, 150 grand, yeah. you know, this isn't just like, Oh, a couple grand. It's, 
you know, if you're going to buy a practice and then you're going to have to put another 150 to 300,000 in to just get it up to speed, a buyer is going to want to not pay as much for the practice. Right. right? Yeah. 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 And then, you know, I guess I would say, you know, if there's a lot of turnover, um, especially if it's a multi-location. So if there's a lot of turnover in your doctor ranks, um, but if you're a single office, if there's a lot of turnover in your staff, that would suggest, you know, there's probably some issues there. Um, obviously any sort of malpractice um, right. claims um, or reputational, um, um, you know, negative, negative reviews can certainly impact um, and then any sort of um, personnel type issues between doctors and staff um, is never good. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah, yeah. I, I think I deal with those a lot in divorces. Yeah. So um, probably steal clear from there. So let's say, <clears throat> let's say we have a, doc a dentist and maybe a solo practice or a, a, a few dentists, a few hygienists and things like that. Um, and they get approached by a DSO or a group practice. What are some of the terms and conditions that they could expect that maybe they wouldn't think of? Because a lot of people think, I'm going to sell my practice, you give me some money, and then I just leave. Like, I don't need to stay here, right? You yeah. know. So what are some of the things that they should be mindful of? Well, so first I would say it's not if they get contacted because they're getting contacted today. I mean, the amount of uh, outreach, you know, whether it's directly from a private equity firm or a strategic um, partner um, or even, you know, brokers um, are really trying to go directly to doctors to try to convince them to sell their businesses. Um, and, you know, as the consolidation continues, you know, that's probably only going to get worse because we're going to see more and more groups or, and we're going to see bigger groups and the best way for them to grow is through acquiring practices. Um, just as a point of reference, you know, and I don't know that anyone has any super accurate um, count on this, but you know, what I've heard is we're probably about 35% consolidated at this point. Um, mm -hmm. So still, you know, quite a ways to go. Um, but, um, you know, I think that, um, like a lot of times I think I'm seeing dentists, they're still needing to stay on for, uh, you know, it could be a while and these are, you know, dentists and doctors and, and a lot of entrepreneurs don't always want to, um, um, take, take direction, from somebody else. So I think in some cases, it's not just, hey, I sold you my book of business and I'm out of here. They usually want one, two, three, five, you know, years of somebody to work there or indefinitely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it depends. I would say, you know, in most cases, the longest term um, that they're going to require is probably five years. Um, certainly one year would be um, the least. And you know, pretty unlikely depending on the circumstances of, of the business and the, so, you know, as a solo practitioner, it's probably going to be more critical that, that doctors stay longer, say two years, um, as opposed to if you're selling, you know, a multi-office, multi-doctor practice, you know, maybe there's some shifting around um, so that maybe say a senior doctor could in essence retire as part of the transaction. But, you know, by and large, typically, you know, there is some requirement um, to stay on, whether it's in a clinical or, you know, more managerial role. Um, you know, some of the other things that you might come across would be um, a requirement to switch supply companies, um, a requirement to switch lab companies. Um, most of the larger groups have um, what they call a formulary, which is um, specific, you know, inventory items that are approved. Um, and um, so you'd have to switch to their formulary typically. Um, you know, some of the other things that um, could come into play would be restrictive covenants. Um, 
you know, and depending on, you know, who you're transitioning the practice to, there can be two levels of that covenant. One can be sort of clinically focused, um, and then the other can be uh, managerial. And so the managerial um, restrictive covenant typically has a wider geography that it covers because the buyer is saying, you know, once you become part of our organization, you're going to learn our secret sauce and, you know, we want to protect ourselves against competing against ourselves for some period of time. So um, that's usually something that um, most people aren't accustomed to seeing. Yeah, the non-compete, I think, <clears throat> you know, might survive beyond, you might have to work for a year or two or three, and then there could be still a non-compete that could be pretty significant, right? Um, you know, going beyond that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Another big one is compensation. So, you know, most groups have um, compensation formulas. I've heard anywhere from 25 to 40% of collections. Um, specialty has its own sort of way of looking at that. But, um, you know, that's a big one that, um, again, when, you know, I'm working with clients, there is a little bit of leeway there. Um, and what I, hope to convey to my clients is that um, obviously the more that you get paid, the less EBITDA you're going to show. And so there's an inverse relationship there. And, you know, oftentimes for many of the clients that we work with who don't want to work another five, 10 years, they're really better off getting more purchase price than they are getting annual compensation. And a lot of that um, comes down to the differential in the tax rate, which we currently enjoy, which, you know, who knows what will happen going forward. But, you know, that oftentimes I get into these conversations and, you know, most doctors will just do a simple calculation of like, well, this is what I make today. And this is what I'm going to make going forward. And it's like, well, but today you're paying probably 40% or more in taxes. And, you know, if you do this transaction, you're going to get most of that money. It's really, you know, prepaid cash flow is what you're getting. You're going to get most of that money at, you know, probably at least 20% or low, you know, 20% less than what you're paying or more. Um, so, um, you know, that's definitely something to think about and consider. And there's a fine line with compensation about, you know, what is reasonable and what you just want, right? We all right. want to get paid more, but what's reasonable for the industry. And I do tell people like $1 of W-2 wages or compensation equals $1 of compensation, less taxes. Right. And $1 of cash flow in the business could equate to 3 to $5 of value in the business. And so it is better dollars at the value level or the business value level than necessarily at the income capacity level. But you also, if you sell and, and you were making 125 or 150 or 175 and you preferred 250, I totally understand that. But that's usually where they may continue your salary if they don't have a, a metric to recalculate it, right? Okay. So you're not going to be earning what you did in the past, you're going to be being paid for that. Right. And then you're going to have to have a reduced salary going forward. Yeah. No. I think another just, um, this is more of a technical point. Um, but it's very interesting, you know, in the couple of divorce cases that I've been asked to be sort of a second set of eyes on or um, a second opinion on. Um, oftentimes, the salary calculation is the biggest area of dispute because especially when you're dealing with a, so, a solo practitioner. So many solo practitioners um, may not take salary. Right. Okay. So you have those that don't take salary and then you have those that take salary for basically retirement purposes. Right. And you know, when you think about evaluator trying to get publicly available data, if they're getting data that's based on tax returns of a dentist, at, you know, NASIX code or whatever, um, you know, those salaries are, are kind of arbitrary, really. 
Hmm. And, you know, I've seen this a couple of times where, you know, that's what the valuator used and it's really created, you know, a very inappropriate um, valuation because it's so below market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think it, it, it is a, a complexity, um, you know, even it, it, with most businesses, including dental practices and, and everything, um, you know, the even the salary differs by area. Um, it differs by, I mean, you could both be in the same area, but one is urban and one is suburban and one is rural and you're going to have different metrics and all of that. So I, I agree. That's, that's a lot. Um, now, if we look at, are there any different terms that private equity will kind of apply or, you know, are, are they dealing with more earnouts, or is this even a concept kind of in the, in the dental practice transactions? Well, um, I mean, when you're dealing directly with private equity, um, it's just a totally different transaction style or structure. Um, and so, you know, private equity typically is not going to partner with a single lo- location. So they're going to want to have some amount of, of um, you know, diversity. Footprint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in terms of, of um, locations. And, you know, generally... Um, those that are looking to partner with private equity are typically doing so because they, in their current conditions, they can't grow at the pace that they want to grow. And that can come from several different areas. It can come from time, you know, lack of time. It can come from lack of people. So access to quality people um, that can help you scale your business and then probably most importantly is money. So most traditional banking relationships today um, that are working with dentists across the country, you know, they have sort of a governor on how much growth they're willing to allow a group to have in a given period of time, typically a year. And so, you know, generally we see that as being, you know, allowing a group to do one to two either acquisitions or new offices every year. And so, you know, many of these groups have ambitions far beyond that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, entering into a relationship with a private equity firm certainly gets them better access to capital, hopefully gets them some guidance and maybe access to talent, um, especially at the, you know, more executive uh, levels of an organization um, but what comes with that is generally, you know, they're going to want a longer commitment from you because, you know, you're the founder and or operator and driver of the business. And in many cases, some of these private equity firms have never invested in healthcare. Maybe they've never invested in dentistry. Um, and so, you know, they need you to continue to make sure that their investment, um, not only holds, but really grows, which is why, you know, they're interested in uh, partnering. Well, and are private equity then looking more for like younger, more technologically advanced, you know, or certain, I mean, are they even looking at certain areas like um, braces or orthodontry or what else, you know, uh, oral surgery or cosmetic surgery? I mean, are there certain areas that they're, because in my mind, that would be younger doctor that's really trying to kill it in social media, that's trying to like grow the practice crazy that they would, but wouldn't have the money to kind of do it. They would be interested in that, but are they looking for a certain profile? So that's a really interesting question because we, there's been a huge shift. So you know, back when I started in this in this space, um, most investors wanted control, and so um, the typical relationship was there was like a friendly doctor that held the license, you know, to abide by state regulations, and then you know most of the decision making authority was with um, you know that that management entity, and 
you know, I think that worked fine, you know, for many organizations. But, you know, what I think people finally woke up to, and especially investors, is, you know, if we really want these businesses to grow and succeed, if we really want to have retention of our doctors, and as we have to go lower into the age bracket um, to, to find partners or even just acquisition candidates, we have to become a more attractive option. And so we've seen this tremendous shift where most DSOs today have some sort of equity role component um, for certainly the, the doctors. Um, most of them have paths to partnership for associates that either um, are there as part of the tra transaction or come on later. Um, and so there's really this, you know, focus on um, making the doctors have um, a position in the company um, that allows them to also benefit from the growth that largely is probably going to be driven by what they do on a day-to-day -day basis, um, not only as themselves, but overseeing their teams of hygienists and assistants. Um, you know, so, so that's been a big shift and I think a really um, great opportunity um, for all parties because while there are a number of very entrepreneurial dentists that certainly are talented both clinically and you know business um, have you know business savvy, the vast majority get into dentistry because they love dentistry. Right. They love the clinical aspect. They love working with patients and helping patients. And um, you know, this model I think really helps marry those two. You know, provided you find the right partner. Um, you know, as a dentist, if you can focus on your clinical work and you've got somebody, a partner that really understands how to run a business, that really understands how to manage people, that really understands um, how to negotiate a bank line, how to negotiate um, a contract with an insurance company for, for better reimbursement, how to negotiate a supply contract. I mean, all of these things that now um, are making it much harder to be a business owner in dentistry. Um, it's a, it's a really a win-win situation. And so, you know, we are seeing even joint venture relationships. I mean, there's probably any way that you could think about partnering with somebody it's probably exist in dentistry somewhere. Well, and to that extent, I think that, you know, in some cases, how are the dentists attracting these younger dentists to transition into the retirement and, or like what you've just said, makes me think that, you know, there is a difference before, if you were a dentist, right. When, when 20 years ago, whenever we started kind of doing what we were doing, um, you either went to work for somebody like another single person, right. Or you just did it yourself and you bootstrapped it and you figured it out. And that those were the two methods. Now that we have kind of younger, uh, I mean, the world is different than oh. just period. Mm -hmm. And now that we have that happening, do you think that it's, it's the younger dentists that are kind of creating this opportunity for private equity in the fact that they're not maybe made for, um, uh, for entrepreneurship. They are not built for that. They don't want the risk. They don't want, they already have the debt that they have to pay off. You know, they want a job, they want a paycheck, they want a constant flow of clients. Um, but they don't necessarily want to go get them, right? They just want them to show up. They want to show up every day. Do you see that as, as part of what's changing the landscape? A little bit. Yeah. I don't know if there's like, um, you just, I mean, the whole bunch of things just popped in my head because there's so many interesting, um, sort of macroeconomic, um, things happening that I think are impacting, you know, what's going on in dentistry, especially with group practice. So, you know, we talked earlier about the debt loads that students face. Um, you know, what we didn't talk about was the cost of owning a practice. So whether you 
you know, buy a practice or you build one from scratch, you know, that's anywhere from, you know, half a million to a million plus dollars. And not only that, that's much costlier today than it was years ago because we have so much technology today that again is is becoming standard of care. Um, so so we've got those pressures there. Now, what you also have to think about is the pressures on your revenue. Mm-hmm. So today, there is more insurance involvement in dental practice than there was 25, 30 years ago. And not only is there more insurance involvement, but the insurance there's downward pressure on reimbursement rates. Um, and so when you think about that, you've got your revenue, you know, you've got downward pressure on your revenue, you've got upward pressure on expenses, then it becomes really tough to be successful if you're not business savvy, if you're not willing to kind of put seven days a week in, you know, for some period of time, not forever. But, you know, I've it's always interesting to me, you know, working with clients that are, say, you know, 60, 65 plus you know, they always talk about how when they first started, they were open seven days a week, they did whatever it took to, you know, make sure they could support themselves and their families, they would work late into the night, early in the morning. You talk to most, you know, new graduates today, they want to work four days a week. Mm-hmm. And, um, and these, you know, some of these conversations I've had are graduates that have half a million dollars in debt. And they want a BMW and, you know, (laughs) you know, so it's an, so it's an interesting um, dynamic there. And then the last thing I think too is, um, you know, we're now over 50% of dental graduates are female. And we know that um, while there's, you know, some amazing female doctors and amazing entrepreneurial female doctors, you know, most female dentists at some point of their career are not going to be you know, in the practice because they're going to be focused on family. Um, so, but, you know, I think when you think of all of that coming together um, and also maybe sort of an answer to what we talked about earlier with senior doctors slowing down, you know, rather than slow down, there's so many options today to sell your practice to a group, still be able to work, and then gradually reduce your schedule, right. but you've already gotten, you know, the equity of your business. And now as part of a group, you know, group practices have a bit more flexibility um, with being able to have, you know, maybe there's one doctor who works two days in this office and two days in that office and, you know, whatever it is, or maybe there's, you know, split schedules because they do a seven to two shift and a you know, one to eight or whatever it is. But, um, you know, I certainly think that there is a lot more flexibility um, for doctors of all ages um, working in a group model. And, you know, not so much that this relates to the owner of the business, but the group model also affords every person on your team a greater opportunity than they would ever have if it was just a single location. Mm-hmm. Um, and I talk about this a lot with clients because, I mean, most most sellers have very strong relationships with their teams and they really want to make sure that um, there's a place for them um, post-transaction. And in many, to- in many cases, not only do, do those teams retain their positions, but again, they may have, you might have an assistant who just really has a knack for, I don't know, managing inventory. And now that assistant can now, maybe she becomes the inventory manager for four offices. Right, right. Or an office manager. Maybe that that person can become a regional manager and they, they can now oversee six locations. So, you know, it's, there's a lot of opportunity, I think, for, for all people in the group setting. And I think, uh, for a lot of the macroeconomic things that we've talked about, um, it makes sense for a lot of people. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that this has been really helpful. I think some of my last question, I think, um, <laughs> in, in case we, you know, want to go further, but how, so I'm a dentist, right? 
and I've been doing this for a long time and I'm just sort of moderately getting tired. Right. Right. You know, cause like I know right now our, our dentist from the pandemic, you know, uh, because of the pandemic, they were like, Hey guys, you guys are late for your six month. Come on in for your six month. And we called and my husband called and they're like, so we can see you in four months. <laughs> I was like, what? So, I mean, there's a lot going on right now. There's a ton of patients, a ton of business, but I think also people may be like, uh, I'm tired. I want, I want to take a break. So if I'm a dentist and I'm somewhere in this phase, right? How do I determine what path is right and how should I transition my practice? Because in mergers and acquisitions, we tell people to think three to five years, years before you're actually ready to step out the door. So like, how do I figure this out then? Yeah. I mean, certainly having the conversation sooner rather than later is, is critical. I mean, I think for um, again, think back to the conversation we talked about earlier, where we've got the doctor whose practice has declined. He has a certain, he or she has a certain um, understanding of what they think the value is or the value that they need, um, which may or may not reflect conversations they have or have not had with their wealth managers or their financial advisors. And, you know, if you come to me and say, I need to sell in four months, that makes it very hard for everybody to really help you make sure that you get the transition um, that you deserve and that will, you know, ideally set you up in, in the best way. Um, you know, so I think having those conversations three to five years out with, you know, whoever's on your team, CPAs, you know, other advisors, you know, financial planners or wealth managers um, is really critical one, to make sure that you're positioning the practice so that it will receive its highest and best value, but also to ensure that you're selling it um, with your retirement in mind and your needs for your retirement in mind. Um, Yeah. I I mean, I think I've seen some practices where, you know, let's just, we'll use easy numbers. Let's say they have 250 to the bottom line or EBITDA, right? And I say, okay, you can probably get 750,000 three times. Okay. Let's just make up numbers right now. And they'll be like, what? I need $3 million to retire. And I'm like, okay, well then you have 250,000 that you can earn every year. And then you're going to be able to sell it at some point. So, you know, part of it is how much further do I need to work? When do I need to sell it? But I think that a lot of times they're like, well, I need it to be worth this because that's how much I need to live. And that's usually way more than the practice could be worth. And then we have well, then you should go get a valuation, you know, like you should see what the value is. And I think that that's a good step. I also think it's a really good step to reach out to people like you who are actually, actually sell, you know, like I'm valuing them, right? I'm not selling them. Right. Right. So I can do the hypothetical and I can look at all the numbers and I can look at all the metrics, but when it comes down to it, you're going to also need to partner with somebody who can tell you what is actually going on because how deals were getting done. I don't care what industry you are in pre pandemic is not how deals are getting done post pandemic. Yeah. And that's just one example, you know, like example. Right. Um, yeah. I think- I mean, we're, we're always more than happy to have a, a call with somebody. Obviously it's always better for us to have more time to develop a relationship with a client, but you know, I'm always happy to have a call with someone to give them a, just a quick test on, you know, where the market is and, and how their uh, practice fits into that. I think the other thing I would also say is, um, which I always hesitate bringing up, but it's because it's, it's the, it's the Debbie Downer side of it in that you never know what's going to happen. I mean, I can't tell you how many clients I've worked with, um, you know, 70 plus that say, well, I I don't need to sell because, you know, I'm healthy and I feel good and I I'm still, you know, can treat my patients at the level that I want to. 
And, you know, I've heard, just heard too many other stories where something happens and, you know, the minute something happens, the value of that practice becomes, you know, very questionable. Mm -hmm. um, well, and, and it's even, a lot of pressure on the family, potentially. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, that. and it's not just death, right? Like, no, we're not saying yeah. something bad. We're saying, like, dental practice and doctors, it is a physical job, yeah. you know? And so there are you know, I've known a lot of dentists that have had some physical ailments from even doing the work, yeah. you know, so I think that you have to keep everything in mind. But um, tell us more about you, your firm, how people can contact. We're going to show kind of some ways that people can contact you because I think, you know, you have given even more information that I thought I had a few epiphanies and I'm like, Oh yeah, that's good. I like that. So um, how can people kind of get a hold of you? You said you offer to talk to people. I think that's amazing. Yeah. Um, here's your, you work, uh, you're one of the managing directors at Caber Hill. Correct. Yep. yep. We have a new website, so we're really thrilled about. So please come visit check us it out. And, and check us out. And, um, I think you'll get a real good sense of who we are and, and how we can help. Um, you know, we, I would say are really focused on, um, especially myself. I mean, we have, you know, a number of people on our team, but given my background in history and, you know, whether it's a blessing or a curse being a CPA and detail oriented, um, <laughs> I tend to really dig into understanding you know, what's going on in the practice or practices. And um, really what that does is help me make sure that I can convey to you what the real value of, of you know, what you're going to take to market is. Um, you know, so, you know, I spend probably almost exclusively my time representing sellers. Um, and um, there are, times when the firm will take on doing buy side advisory, but um, primarily we work on sell side advisory. And again, you know, I think we enjoy having a bit more time, not only to get to know our clients and their businesses, um, but to then also make sure that we can make sure that they get the maximum value. And, um, you know, running a process or, you know, thinking about a transaction, um, it's definitely can be time consuming. Um, it definitely can be distracting. And so again, the more time that we have to plan for it, um, and to also then make sure that we understand exactly what you're looking for and what you want to achieve through a transaction, um, just helps set us up better to help you and advise you. Yeah. And it really is. I, I appreciate all the information that you've provided. It really is a relationship. I mean, it's not like you're going to sell your house and you just need to pretty it up and get a real estate agent and sell it. You know, like this is a livelihood. It's a process. It's a transition. Um, and it's also thinking about what you're going to do next. So I think that reaching out, um, I think there's also a benefit in working with somebody who is exclusively in this space because your connections to the private equity, your connections to other DSOs or group practices or transactions that you've done do help position that person or that doctor in a different light and different options. Um, so I think that it is good to e at least start the conversation. And if you find people, you know, yes, some of the people are like, you know, oh, you know, come on, I'll sell your business. I'll sell. But that's not for the most part. It's really people understanding the industry looking at what positive things you have in your practice and what somebody is looking for in a practice and connecting them. And sometimes that takes time. And it also takes time for you to get out of the mindset of doing this work every single day, you know, so both of those kind of happen over time. But I think building that relationship and being ready, you know, even cleaning up your books and doing different things will get you in a better position when you are ready, ready, right. you know, like, cause we're sort of 
ready. Like we want to know more and then we're ready to take the leap. So, um, but reaching out to you, they can at least get started in that process. Um, you do understand business valuations, right. you know, you do have a financial background. So, right. so you, you get all of that, but it would be specific to how you price a dental practice. So I think that's, that's really unique experience. So, yeah. yeah and I think too, it's also, this is one of the biggest decisions most people in this situation are going to make. And there's always a lot of emotion um, with that. I, I constantly say, I wish I had a degree in psychology and, you know, maybe I have one just through experience. <laughs> but, um, you know, so again, getting back to that relationship and having that time. And, um, you know, also I think what is really great about being part of Caber Hill is, you know, while I specialize in focusing on the dental industry, you know, others in our firm do not, you know, we, we generally, you know, we are heavily healthcare focused, but you know, what I, the benefit of that is that not only do you get the dental expertise, but we also see deals across all different sizes, other industries. Um, we interact with a lot of private equity firms, you know, those that are focused on healthcare or not. Um, but we're also seeing, you know, terms and conditions and trends, um, not just based on, on dentistry. And, and I think that that's also pretty valuable. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time and all of your knowledge today. And I'm sure things change so quickly. Maybe we'll be on talking about more changes in the industry. So thank you, Maria, so much. Oh, thank you. So um, this really was a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, I hope we can do it again at some yeah. point. Awesome. Thank you. All right.